0: This morning we have Chenda Moore coming up. She's going to read the scripture for us. If you don't mind, you can use this microphone right there for us. It's good to have Rob and Chenda back in the house. And uh, All right, so follow along on the screen while Chenda reads for us. Can I stand right here? You sure can.
1: Good morning. Good morning. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them, and dwell in their cities and in their houses. You shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide them into three parts. The area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the ax to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, as provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him, and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities. Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot.
0: Amen. Thank you, Chenda. Appreciate you very much. Give her a hand. <clears throat> all right. We are thankful for the Word. Now, so that, that's some pretty heavy reading there, right? You just read some complicated things, and if, if the Bible's kind of a new thing to you, you're probably scratching your head going, what is all this talking about? An axe head flying off and killing somebody, and they run to a city, and all kinds of crazy stuff. But let's let's consider the context, okay? So we're talking about thousands of years ago, before the nations were formed clearly, people lived, their family was the most important thing, but their family was very tight with their clan. So you might have 13, 14 families that lived together in a little area, and that clan identifies with several other clans to make a, anybody can guess, a tribe, okay? And then several tribes could get together to make a nation, but sometimes it didn't go that far. Sometimes clans just hung out with clans that didn't identify with any nation, And you think, man, that seems so barbaric and so old world and all that stuff. Did you know that a big chunk of the Middle East still lives that way today? If you go to Afghanistan, they don't think about their government in Kabul. They don't think about it at all. They think about their clan. All they think about is their clan and their clan defends themselves and their clan has machine guns and AR-15s and all kinds of stuff. Things that they've taken from the Russians and things they've taken from the Americans. And they protect their clan. And some of those clans don't get along at all. You've heard of like the Kurds and things like that. People that are living in the same country, but they hate each other. And so even though this may seem ancient to you, This is still modern world in many places of the world, especially even in China. If you go to the far northern regions, the communists don't even hardly care about those parts. And those people live in clans and kind of run themselves. Unless they're a problem, the communist government doesn't really mess with them very much. So there's three things in this chapter, and it's going to seem like they're not really even connected, but Moses did have a plan, and God obviously did too. The first thing we see is cities of refuge. Cities of Refuge. We actually covered this in chapter 4. If you want to go back and learn more about chapters of chapter 4 uh, and read about cities of refuge, you can go to our website and just look up you know, Deuteronomy 4. And it's right there and you can hear the whole message. I'm going to touch on parts of it today. The second thing that he touched on in just one verse, but it's important, is ancient landmarks. And then the third thing that he spends a lot of time on is faithful witnesses. So these three things we're going to cover. So he says, in, in verse 1, he says, when the Lord your God, God is reminding him, I'm going to do this for you. Okay? I'm going to defeat these enemies for you. Remember, how did the walls of Jericho come down? God just caused them to fall down. There were so many things that, there were sometimes they picked up weapons and went into battle. But you're talking sometimes small numbers against greater numbers. Every time God was reminding them, I'm the one that's fighting for you. I am the Lord your God. And he says, I will cut off these nations. There's seven nations that are in the land of Canaan, the promised land, that God is saying, because they are evil, and because you're my chosen people, I'm going to scoot them out of the land, and I'm going to bring you into the land. God is always doing at least two things at once, okay? And we'll talk more about that in a second. But how many nations are there? There's seven. And of course, we know in the Bible, the number seven, you see that a lot. And what does that mean? What does number seven mean? completion or perfection or whatever. So God's saying, I'm going to completely give you the land. I'm not just going to do six out of seven. And so it's interesting how God, this isn't just poetry and God writes this story and puts in all kinds of numbers and makes it fancy. God is orchestrating history to happen. And so he, he's making this happen. So you can see that here's the seven tribes or the, the seven nations that are in there. And what's interesting, the whole thing is called the land of Canaan. But one of the tribes is the Canaanites, and you think maybe that may be confusion, confusing, but if you know your history, if you're older like I am, you know, we used to, the Soviet Union, we also called them what? Russia. We called the whole country Russia, even though Russia was just one part of it, okay? And, and there was the Ukraine and, and, and Slovakia and all these different parts of it, but we called the whole thing Russia. Just like here in the Promised Land, they call the whole thing Canaan, but really the Canaanites are just the primary tribe, but they have several others The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites. Some archaeologists think the Termites were included, but we just see seven right here in this land. And God is going to systematically take out each one of them. And He does each one of them in a different way. And God's just really orchestrating history to teach Israel, I'm the God that's in control. He says, And you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and their houses. Now, Let's remind ourselves, where did Israel just come from? Slavery, okay? They lived in mud houses and and shanties, if you will, and all kinds of things like that. They came out of Egypt, and I guess literally they just got done wandering in the wilderness, so they went from mud houses to tents, and now they're about to go into a land where people have built these massive houses, and God's going to give them all to them. They've got vineyards already planted, They've got fences already built. They've got all this stuff. All they have to do is go in and take it. Now, again, why is God doing this? It's not like, here's these innocent people. What, you're going to kick us out to give it to the Jews? No, these were evil people. And let me remind you that they were sacrificing babies. They were forcing little girls and women into prost- temple prostitution. They were doing, they, this was like the most wicked p- group of people you can imagine. So God's doing two things at once. He's punishing the evil... And he's rewarding his people. And you'll, you'll see that principle that works in life a lot. In fact, in Proverbs, it says, The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You know, there are people out there that are cheating and scheming and doing all kinds of things to build up their wealth. And God says, yeah, you just keep on doing that for a while. But someday you're going to die. And I'm going to give all that to somebody else. Someone else who deserves it. You see that happening all the time in society where people, where money is changing hands and it always ha- seems to find a way where God can orchestrate the trickle-down to those who need it. Um, you, you may be working in a job right now where someone got fired for stealing. And they got dispossessed from the job and God gave it to you. You might be living in a house that someone was really using their money in a poor way and in, in fact maybe in an evil way and then they got behind and the house got foreclosed on And God gave it to you, you know, and then you got it for a great bargain because it was a foreclosure. You may be driving a car where someone didn't make their payments because they were spending on drugs and that car got repoed and then they put it back on the lot, cleaned it up and you got a great deal because someone else got dispossessed of that. That's the way God works all the time. And so which way are you going to live? If you live for God, you will see things just flow your way. And again, I'm not talking about name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about that thing. I'm not saying that it's God's will for everybody to be wealthy. I'm just saying that Romans 8.28 applies to this kind of situation. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for good. God works what evil people are doing together for your good. And so this is a biblical principle you'll see all throughout the scriptures and he says, you will set apart three cities. Now, again, in chapter 4, he already told them about three cities. But now he's talking about three new ones. And, and just follow me here. These three cities are, as, as Chender read, cities of refuge. So this is new to the world. The, the world is full of just pretty much barbaric people who don't really have any code. It's just pretty much whoever is strong enough to enforce their rules on other people gets to do so. But here Moses is saying, no, 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 God has some biblical principles here. There is a big difference between if I hate somebody and I plan and premeditate their murder versus I'm out in the field working with them and we're cutting down trees and my axe head swings off and hits the guy in the head and kills him. Man, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And because they were transitioning from a barbaric society to a civil society because of God's laws, God's law always brings uh, civility to civilization, it, and because I'm living in this transitional thing, man, I go explain to their family, hey, me, me and your husband, we were working on the field and I accidentally killed them. What? And people all start drawing swords or picking up rocks and whatever and they're just going to avenge them. No, you, you don't have a pl- You can't call 911. You can't, you know, run to the nearest courthouse. You can't do any of that. You would, God says, okay, I'm going to set up cities of refuge. You run to the city of refuge. And when you get there, you tell the priest what happened. And here in this picture, you see this guy actually being chased as illustration, and he's being chased by the designated person in the family whose job it was to be the avenger of blood, is what they called him. Okay, remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Boaz was that person. It was his job to make sure every widow was taken care of, and it meant he may may have to be the first in line to marry them, but it also was his job that if anybody in the family got murdered, to avenge their blood. They were their own police force in that situation, so every clan had somebody who was the goel as the Hebrew word who was in charge of taking care of the clan. They were kind of like the the vice the the chairman of the clan and so they would say hey brothers let's get together let's go hunt this guy down he killed our brother and they would chase him down and they don't know the whole story maybe they do maybe they don't and maybe they're going to be just and maybe they're not but they run to the city and when the priest gets there the priest takes them in shuts the door and says no no this guy's here we're going to do an investigation and the priest And the judges and the elders do an investigation, and they look for witnesses. And and so all the stuff that we take for granted every day in our justice system was brand new here. This was brand new, inspired of God. Up until this time, it was like, oh yeah, you kill me, I'll kill you. Just, you know, not totally like caveman, but not totally civil either. And what was interesting is that if the priest found that this guy really was innocent, and and that he committed manslaughter, not murder. See, there's a difference between the two. We've been seeing that in the news. Man, murder is premeditated, like, I, I want to kill this guy, I'm going to go do it. Manslaughter is, you know, maybe we got in a fight and I punched him in the jaw, and, and next thing you know, he fell on the ground, and hit his head on a rock. I didn't mean to kill him, I was just defending myself or whatever it may be. But you still killed him, but it's not the same. That's why we get first, second, and third degree homicide from the Bible. We get manslaughter from the Bible. We get all kinds of things. The difference between burglary and robbery comes from the Bible. The whole idea of judges and elders and things like that, and a jury, everything comes from the Bible. And we're getting so far away from that, that's why we're seeing our judicial system break down, because we're getting away from the the foundation, which is the Word of God. So the high priest, if they found out that he really was innocent, they would keep him there in the city and say, hey, we're going to take care of you. You can do some work around here. We'll feed you. We'll clothe you. We'll do everything for you. And then here's the, the amazing thing. When the high priest died, the guy got to go free and leave the city. And nobody could touch him. And this is a, just a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, our high priest. In Numbers 35, it says, For he must remain in the city or, or refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And then we fast forward to the New Testament. It says that that's basically a picture of Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, talking about Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that a beautiful picture there? And so Jesus Christ protects us. And guess what? When Jesus Christ died for our sins, we're set free. And that's an amazing picture here. In fact, everything in the Old Testament It points to Jesus. And so when you're reading your Old Testament, think about where do I see Jesus in this passage? And in verse 3 it says, You shall measure the distance and divide into three parts the area of the land. So basically, so everybody has equal access to this. Let's measure them out, spread them out, based on the population and the geography. And that the Lord your God gives you as possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. And so what he he initially told them in in chapter 4, here's the three places. Now he's saying that if you'll obey me, I will give you even more territory and you can add three more cities of refuge. And here's what it would would have looked like. But in history you find out, as you read your Old Testament, there was only three the whole time. They never did add the other three. Why was that? It's because they were disobedient. He says, therefore I command you, you shall set apart three, in other words, three more cities. And if the Lord God enlarges your territory... Provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities. So you got the three, and if you will love me, if you will obey me, I'm going to reward you with more land, but be sure when you add more land, add three more cities refuge. But again, in history, we find out they never added it. And my question for us this morning is, how many blessings have we missed out on because of our disobedience? God says, man, I had a great job for you over here, but you wouldn't trust me. Man, I had a great marriage for you over here, but you had to go mess it up. Man, I had a great opportunity for you here at college, but you decide you just wanted to party instead. You know, and the list goes on and on and on, right? And it just, there's a joke that, you know, that that, uh, someone died and went to heaven, and St. Peter was taking him on a tour and all that stuff, and then he passed by this humongous warehouse just full of gold and crowns and all kinds of stuff, and the, the, the believer says to Peter, so, so what's that building there? He said, that's all the blessings that God wanted to give to people, but they didn't, they, they didn't obey. And I wonder how many things we're missing out on. It, it says here in Romans 8, 32, it says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? There's so much more that God wants to give us. So much more. There's so much more in in the way of blessings that God wants to give, but he has to attach to it a requirement, and that's obedience. Every parent in this room knows that your children can't get everything they want, that there, there are certain things they get just because they live there. They get a bed, they get food, they get clothing, but if they want more things than they want, they have to prove themselves to be responsible. You know, your kid may be at the age where they want a phone. But if they're not acting responsible, they're not going to get the privilege of a phone. You know, If they, if they keep breaking the Xbox that they got, don't expect a new one for Christmas. You've know? you got to prove yourself responsible. And God the Father does the same thing with us. He wants to give us more, but we've got to prove ourselves responsible. And it says here all things. But what kind of all things are we talking about? Let me, let me talk to you about the kind of things that, that I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not talking about if you're obedient to God, you're going to be driving a Mercedes. If you're obedient to God, you're going to live in a six-bedroom home. Now, let the, leave that for the televangelists, and you can waste your money by giving it to them if you want. I'm not talking about that. Here's the kind of things I'm talking about. I'm talking about whatever trial you're going through, you get the peace that passes understanding. That even though everybody else is freaking out, you're like, I don't know why this is happening, but God's got this. He's in control, and, and I can put my head on my pillow at night and go to sleep and have peace in the midst of trial. That God wants to give you a happy marriage or a happier marriage. And then you'd be like, I can't believe how happy we are. Yeah, we're not perfect, and yes, we still fight, but I cannot believe I I have someone like you loving me. I don't deserve that. That's the kind of, you know what That's what God wants you to have? God wants you to have that where you are just so excited to be married, you cannot believe that this person actually loves me. Because guess what marriage is? It's not something designed for our pleasure alone. Yes, that's included. But it's meant to be a picture of the gospel. Think about that. Every day wake up and man, Jesus died for me? After all I've done? And he's forgiven me? And I get to live for him? And every day you are supposed to be giving your spouse that kind of love. To where they they feel so loved that they don't even deserve it. And that points them to who? To Jesus. Not how wonderful you are alone, but how wonderful God is. God, amen. God wants to bless you with godly kids. Now again, there are kids who will go astray on their own and it's not your fault. The Heavenly Father had that happen with Adam and Eve. He was the perfect father, and his two kids turned out to be punks. So, you know, it always happens, okay? But in general, God wants to bless you with godly kids because they say that an older person is only as happy as their least happy child. You ever heard that one before? And so, if you got a bunch of kids, especially the mom, her happiness will be brought down to wherever her least happy kid is you know and because you want to see all your kids thrive you want to see all your kids uh, not just be good people but be godly people and so God wants also bless you with the souls of your friends think about someone you know someone you love and they don't know Jesus and you just pray and pray and then God gets them saved there's a tie to obedience in that that we can't disconnect uh, this past week, uh, you know, the pastor who organized the revival up there, Dwayne Pollard's been a friend of mine for 35 years, and uh, he he was telling me a story over lunch. Me and Isaiah and Caitlin, he was telling us this story that there was a guy who was in that community that he was trying to show the gospel with, and a guy said, I'm Buddhist. Now, he, he's... He was from here in America. He was Anglo and everything like that, but he just chose Buddhism, not because he grew up in it, but he just looked around at the world's religions and he rejected Christianity and he chose Buddhism. So he's entrenched in this Buddhism, had been in it for about seven years. And so one day he, you know, he said, hey, can I come talk to you? And and I want to hear your story, actually, so it was more about listening. And for six hours, this guy told Dwayne why he was a Buddhist and why he rejected Christianity. And Duane just listened the whole time. Six hours. That's a long time. And uh, at the end of the six hours, Dwayne says to him, he says, Okay, I hear what you're saying and I understand, and, and and I think that's very interesting. He said, I gave you six hours. Will you give me one? And he said, Yeah, he said, All right, I'll come back tomorrow and you give me my one hour. He came back the next day, opened up the scriptures, you know, kind of addressed all the reasons why he walked away from Christianity based on things that weren't wrong with Jesus but wrong with so-called Christians. And, uh, and he led him to Christ. And the guy said, he came to church that Sunday. He made public profession that he was saved. And he said, next Sunday, we're going to baptize this guy. And the guy said, well, I can't come next Sunday. I'm going out of town. But the next Sunday, I will come here and I'll be baptized. So the next Sunday, he was out of town. He came home. He went, unpacked his bags. He sat down in his chair and he died of a heart attack. But just days before, it was led to Christ. That kind of stuff doesn't happen through disobedience. It happens through obedience. And just think about, there are children's lives on the line connected to our obedience. There are souls whose eternities are on the line connected to our obedience. No man is an island, to quote one great author... Everything you do is connected to other people. And if you think that, does, you, there's no victimless crime. Anything you think is done in secret, you're hurting someone else somewhere because it's all connected. And so the, what about the souls of our friends? What about uh, just a sense of satisfaction of I'm living for the Lord and God's blessing me. And what else can I, be, what else can I ask for? You know, what, what a better purpose can I have in my life than to live for him? This is the kind of things that God wants to bless you with. But, but many of these things, if not all these things, can be ruined if we're living a life of disobedience. So the second thing here. So you got the, the, the cities of refuge. Now we got one verse here, the ancient landmarks. He said, you shall, not rem- you shall not move your neighbor's landmark. It's just what it says. It's a place that marks the land. Okay? Everybody around this, this time of the, the world... Is, is farmers or shepherds or a little bit of both, okay? So property is everything. You stay on your side, I'll stay on mine. So they would put big stones up to mark the corner of their property and then a big stone in that corner and a big stone in that corner and maybe even several stones along the way and fences and all kinds of stuff. The better, the more money you had, the more you can mark off your property. And then what happened in Israel? Fa- property stayed in families for generations, And even if you sold the property, guess what happened at the year Jubilee? It went back to the original owner. So basically, when you bought property, all you're doing is leasing it. So if there was four years before Jubilee happened, you were leasing it for four years. Then you had to give it back. So that would affect the price. Let's say Jubilee just happened and you buy a piece of property, you can have it for 50 years. Guess what happens to the price? It goes up. If Jubilee is in three months, but you really need this land. You're not going to pay very much for it. And it might be a win-win situation. But marking the property so that you don't remove the ancient landmarks. Because you need to know where, what tribe does this belong to? Which clan does this belong to? Which family does this belong to? And they needed to know the history. And he says, which the men of old have set. an Inher- Inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to dispossess. He said, so be careful because those things are there for a purpose. Romans 8.30, sorry, wrong way. And here's a picture. These are actually landmarks that are in Israel today. Now, we use the word landmark uh, metaphorically. We say the Supreme Court gave a landmark decision. In other words, they put a big stone in the ground that, hey, this is the way it is, and this is the way it should be for a long time. And we call that precedence in the court. And so you see landmarks everywhere around the Middle East. You even see it um, in our culture today, but primarily it's with fences. You'll see those guys out there with the camera, like scoping another guy holding the thing or like that, and they're marking off lines. And those things, you can't even buy a house without getting those lines established, and they should not be messed with. Um, funny story. When I when I bought a house in Lake Jackson, um, the neighbor who lived next door to me was an older man. He was a widow. And he and he had a nice piece of property there. And he came over and he said, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. Glad you're here, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he said, hey, I just want to tell you something. Because the lines were done wrong, my fence was accidentally built four inches on your property. And he said, if you want, I'll tear it down and move it back. I said, four inches, who cares? I don't care. I'm trying to be a good neighbor, you know, and, and he was trying to sit, do the right thing, and he was willing to tear it down. And if, I, if I had been a stick in the mud, I could say, yeah, tear your fence down. I want my four inches, you know. But uh, I said, no, don't worry about it. Who cares? So a couple days later, it's trash day, and there's a, a sign that says school zone right in front of my yard because we lived right across the street from AP Boydell Elementary School, and he, I didn't know where to put the trash because we're new. And he had leaned his trash against the pole. So I got there and I leaned my trash against the pole. Thinking, oh, the trash man can grab both bags at the same time. He comes over and knocks on my door. He said, hey, your trash is on my yard. And I was, I wanted to say, you mean on my four inches? <laughs> but I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. But anyway, it's interesting the property lines can be a big deal. In fact, they were a bigger deal back at this time. In fact, Proverbs 22, Solomon says hundreds of years later, he said, do not move the ancient landmarks that your fathers have set. And he, Solomon's given some wisdom here. He said, and I'm not just talking about rocks, okay? There are a reason that certain things are done a certain way in the past. And we need to be careful before we just tear them all down. You know, we saw in the violence last year, people ripping down statues of anybody who ever owned a slave or whatever. And they, they even tore down a statue of, of U.S. Grant. U.S. Grant fought for the North to set slaves free, but they're tearing the statue down because they don't even know their history. And there was one place where there was actually several elderly black people with guns protecting a statue of Abraham Lincoln because the protesters wanted to tear down Abraham Lincoln. He's the one that set them free. It's like if you don't know your history, you're going to do stupid things and just tear stuff down. And this is what Solomon is saying. You know, just because your parents did things a certain way, don't think, oh, they're old, they're stupid. Find out why they did it that way. Not saying your parents are perfect. Not saying our founding fathers of our nation were perfect. Okay? But we can't just rip up everything not knowing why it was there and what was the purpose for it to be there. Um, and when you come into a new situation let's say you go into a new job you say you move into a new neighborhood whatever don't change things about finding out why they are the way they are that's just some good wisdom for you there when you go into a new situation let's say you're a manager you know Find out why the employees are doing things. Watch and observe. And don't just go in and change and everything like a bull in the china shop. Figure out why. And then when you understand why they're doing it, you'll be like, oh, okay, I would have done it that way, but now I see it's different here. So yeah, keep on doing that. But then you can also could say, you know what, I see you're doing this. Let, what do you think about us changing that? And, oh, okay, well, because sometimes people always do things the way, because that's why they've always done them. And that happens a lot in church. One time, there was uh, a mom cooking uh, Easter dinner and she was cooking a ham and a turkey and so she got out the big ham and she cuts off a big chunk of the ham on one end and cuts off a big chunk of the ham on the other end and she puts it in the oven and her daughter who is grown and married at this time says mom why do you cut off the the ends of the ham before you put it in the oven and she goes I don't know we've always done it that way let's ask let's ask grandma and grandma says why do we cut off the ends of the ham before we put it in the oven and grandma said, because when I was your age, my pan was only this big and the ham wouldn't fit, so I had to cut off the ends. But here they're cutting off thinking that it bake's better or whatever it may be. But people do things sometimes not even know why. Not every tradition is good. Some traditions are man-made and they need to change. There are some things, for example, you know when when I, you know, I grew up in church where we opened the hymns. Well then technology happens where you can put stuff off on the screen. And did you know that was like a big fight in churches, like what, we're not going to sing out of this holy book, this hymnal that God gave us, the 67th book of the Bible? You know, they were just so freaking out. Like, I'm not going to sing off the wall. You know, you can keep all that stuff. I'm going to sing out of God's book, the hymnal that God gave us. You know, it's like, come on, man. That's, that's a man-made book. You know, And people, they get all caught up in certain traditions. There was, there was this one country church. True story. Sam Rayner fresh out of seminary, takes a small country church up in Illinois. And uh, there's only like 14 people in church that morning, including his family of five, okay? This is how small this church is. And this church is country as country gets. So it's his first Sunday there, and one guy's up there leading, singing, everybody's singing, and they're going through the hymn book and all that stuff like that. And they pray, they take up the offering, all that stuff. And then Sam gets up to preach. And so he he says, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And he goes through, my text this morning is from whatever verse of the Bible and blah, blah, blah. And this old lady in the back goes, turn on Jesus. And he's like, what? Is that like a weird way of saying amen or what? So he just kind of goes with it and just keeps reading his scripture and he starts preaching. And she goes, turn on Jesus. And he's like, what? So he keeps on preaching. She goes, turn on Jesus. And he looks at the deacon and like, and the deacon gets up and goes to the back behind him and there is a plastic Jesus that when you pull the switch it turns on with a light bulb and it was the church's tradition that when the preacher got to preach he turned on Jesus and Jesus glowed while he was preaching (laughs) you can't make this stuff up people it's crazy and yet some people get in situations with churches where they are so stuck to their traditions that they can't do anything and that's why when we started revolution church we threw out everything and started over and say what does the bible say we're supposed to do we're supposed to sing we're supposed to preach we're supposed to pray we're supposed to give we're supposed to do the lord's supper let's stick to those things and if we added some other things great great but we don't have to do anything else unless it's those things and, and just let let's just be church. Let's just let's just do what God wants us to do. So yeah, there are some traditions that are man-made and they need to change. But there are some traditions that are very biblical and they need to stay. And so we're not going to toss out the Lord's Supper because that seems old and an- antiquated, you know? There's churches that have done that. Like, oh, we don't want to focus on blood and stuff like that. We're not going to do that anymore." You know? And there's some churches that say, "You know, we're just not going to we're not going to sing. We're going to paint pictures instead." Well, if you want to paint pictures, that's fine. But I think singing is a commandment. Over and over again, Sing unto the Lord, a new song and all those commandments. So we need to stick to the Bible and make sure that those landmarks in the Bible are not easily moved. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Those landmarks that were the foundation of Christianity, he says, I'm not here to be a revolutionary and just destroy people. Yes, Jesus was revolutionary, but he was revolting against the traditions of men. Not the biblical principles of God. He said, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so just use some wisdom and some common sense when it comes to old-fashioned things. Ask yourself why they're there. Not, they're not all good. Some can stay just because you want them to. Some need to stay because God wants them to. So that brings us to the third point. Faithful witnesses. Faithful witnesses. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong, in connection to any offense that he has committed. Up until this point, that's what it was. It was my word against your word. And I could say, you stole my cow. And they could say, no, I didn't. And if everybody believes you, then we're all going to beat you up and throw you in jail or whatever. Or we're going to go steal your cows because you stole mine. It was my word against yours. And Moses saying, no, no, no. We're not barbarians. We're going to step up the law here. And because people can make any accusation they want, you need to have two or three witnesses. One witness, you have no case. Two witnesses, you have a case, but it's weak. Three witnesses, you've got a strong case. And you know, this is still in the judicial system today, that if you've got one witness, it's like, uh, there better be some DNA or some other circumstances involved to act as another witness, or we're going to throw your case out. Two witnesses, you got a case, and the judge might hear it, but it's a weak case. You need to know that going in. The judge may throw this out. But if you got three witnesses, and again, a witness can be circum- photographs, videotape; those can count as witnesses. A witness today doesn't have to always be a person. And even circumstantial evidence was was part of the law back then. Um, and he says, he says, only the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. You can't even go to court unless you got two or three. Everything else was thrown out. Um, John chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus applies this principle. You'll see the two or three witness phrase over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself. So here Jesus is saying, hey, I'm God in human flesh. I'm the Messiah. And they're like, no, you're not. He said, okay, you know, let's, let's have a court case about this. Let's, not literally, but let's do what we do to prove anything true. If I alone bear witness myself, my testimony is not true. If I'm just some crazy guy saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, and I'm God here in human flesh, then great, you can dismiss me. But there's another that bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent, you sent to you, you sent to John, and tell like John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Christ, and he has borne witness to the truth. Okay, so it's not just me saying I'm the Messiah. John the Baptist, who also baptized and preached and did miracles, he's saying I'm the Messiah. He said, "But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John." I, you only have my testimony, you do have John's testimony. I've got greater than that. He said, For the works that the Father has given me, accomplished the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And on top of that, the Father sent me, Himself has borne witness about me. He said, So I've got my testimony. I got John the Baptist testimony. I've got the miracles I'm doing. Try to argue with that, and I've got the Heavenly Father's testimony. Because remember, when Jesus was baptized, he said, "What? This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased." They all heard this voice from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And at the Transfiguration, the Father says it again, "This is my beloved Son." So the Fathers testified twice. Jesus performed a boatload full of miracles no pun intended all over the place that people could not argue with and he's saying so you got john the baptist forerunner and the reason john the baptist was a big deal is because the old testament all the jews knew that a forerunner would come before the messiah there'd be somebody saying hey the kingdom of god's here get ready get ready get ready and john the baptist did that so he fulfilled prophecy he fulfilled prophecy by miracles. You've got a voice from heaven, not once but twice, saying, this is my beloved son. And then you got Jesus saying, yeah, I am. So you've got not just three witnesses, you've got four. Jesus goes the extra mile in proving who he is. Back to our text here in Deuteronomy. He says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person. So that's someone who's making the story up. They've got a grudge against you, and so therefore they're going to accuse you of some wrongdoing. Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. Now, they're not going to appear before God himself. They're going to appear before the Lord. How do they do that? Before the priests and the judges whom God appointed. So God has priests. God has judges. Basically, you have a judge and a jury. And, and the, the ones that are in office that, those days. Because remember, every month they, they, they basically cast lots and decide, okay, who's going to be the judge this week? And who's going to burn incenses this, this month? And who's going to sacrifice lambs? And they just rotate it on their jobs that way. He says the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, and the rest shall hear and fear. So there's multiple people hearing this case, they've done it they've done their due diligence and done a thorough investigation, and it shall never again commit any such evil among them. You're, um Did I skip a verse? Hold on. Let me go back. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, it says eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a hand for a hand. There's somewhere in there that said that you shall do, give the punishment to the false witness that you were gone that they wanted to have do this. So, if in in uh, if it meant that like if you stole something, if you stole a cow, you had to restore it uh, a reciprocation with four more cows. So if someone accused you of that, and they were falsely accusing that, guess what? They had to give four cows or whatever, if it might be a beating with a rod ten times on the back, then now you're going to get it. So people didn't make false accusations very easily, okay? It was a pretty dangerous thing because you were going to be in big trouble. Like today in America, you you could bring a false, uh, like a, a, a bogus trial, a bogus charge against someone, go to court, and you lose. What's the worst that happened? You just pay the lawyer's fees or whatever it may be. Um, and so you see this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So, There's false witnesses or or malicious witnesses, but then we see that Jesus is the faithful witness. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, Jesus Christ, what? The faithful witness. Now think about that. You've grown up in a culture where any false witness could just ruin your life. And yet now Jesus says, but I'm the faithful witness that can make your life great. He says he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, what? By his blood. You see, other people can testify against you and say you're guilty. And they might be right. You may really be guilty. They could bring false accusations. But Jesus Christ says, yes, you've sinned. But I paid the price for your sin. And he's the witness that stands before the throne and says, I've paid the price. We don't believe in double jeopardy. You can't punish it twice. I've already been punished for their crime. They get to go free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love for us. I don't care whether you're old or young, male or female, rich or poor, brown, black, or white. Everybody in this room is looking for love. And you may be trying really hard to find it in the right person. And you're hoping that maybe this relationship will work because others haven't. But let me tell you, the relationship you're really looking for is with Jesus. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a romantic love. I'm telling you, that's icing on the cake. I know, my full fat satisfaction in life comes from knowing Jesus loves me more than anybody. And if Tammy loves me, great, icing on the cake. If Tammy was to leave me tomorrow, hope that doesn't happen. Where is she? Don't. That's not a suggestion. Okay. Um, but if she would leave me tomorrow, yes, I'd be devastated. Yes, I'd be hurt. But I wouldn't want to take my life. I wouldn't want to die. I Because I still have the one who loves me more than life itself. In fact, because he loves me, I can love Tammy no matter what, and she can love me no matter what. We're looking for love, and God demonstrated that love for us in that while we were still sinners. You see, we say, well, I'll love you if you love me, and I'll love you if you're nice and you're good-looking, or I'll love you, whatever, and I'll be nice to my neighbor if he does this or that. God loved us while we were sinning against him. While while we were saying with our actions, with our thoughts, you're not going to run my life. I'm going to run my own life. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I don't care what you do. And God says, you know what? Jesus is still coming. He's still going to take the nails for you. Yeah, but God, I want to do what I want to do. He's still going to take that crown of thorns. But God, I want to make my own choices. He's still going to be beaten. And he's still going to die. But here's the good news. He's going to rise again. And you can choose to follow him. He's not going to make you. You can choose to follow him or you can choose to reject the greatest gift you've ever been given. He died for us while we were still sinners. I want you to bow your head if you would. Just Let's have a time of prayer right now. I want you to literally bow your head and close your eyes. Not because there's something magical about doing that, but because it's the only way to really block out everything around you and focus on Jesus Christ right now. My question for you this morning is, do you know this man, the God-man, the God who became human flesh lived the perfect life, and was the perfect sacrifice for your sin. You know your sin, right? I know mine. Several come to mind right off the bat that I'm so ashamed of. And you, you have your own list, right? Jesus died for all of them. He loved you that much. And so the punishment's been paid You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to be cast away for all eternity. You can spend forever in heaven just by simply giving your life to Jesus because he gave his life to you, for you. You could pray a prayer, something like this. The prayer doesn't save you. It's faith and trusting Jesus. But you say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. So many horrible things I've done, but yet you paid for all of them. That's what the Bible is telling me this morning. So, Lord, I don't understand all this, but I I give my life to you. I want to follow you in your footsteps. I'm thankful that you've forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future, that I am washed in your blood. I am made clean in your eyes. So I give my life to you. Thank you for forgiving my sins. I accept you as Lord and Savior. In your name I pray. If, you, if you've made that decision this morning, please let me know about it. I'd love to help you take your next steps as a new believer and learn to grow and follow Jesus. In fact, uh, there's... A few people here are here for the first time today. Let's give the, all guests a hand. We're glad you're here. We, we want to give you a t-shirt if you, if you want. You have got several to choose from back there. Amanda's over here. Wave, wave your hand. Amanda and Charles will be glad to help you uh, at the back table. Just fill out one of these Connect cards so we can know who you are and follow up with you to see if, if, if you have any questions about today. If you want a t-shirt but you're not a first-time guest, you can buy one for a $10 donation there at the back as well. So, hey... Uh, I've had a few conversations with people. I want to talk to everybody over the next few weeks. Just have to be a 10-minute conversation. Just text me when is a good time to call you, and we can just chat. I just want to know what's going on in your life. I want to know how can I help you spiritually, and more importantly, I want to pray with you over the phone. So if you would schedule that, you can text me anytime, and let me know when's a good time to give you a call. Um, we we'll are continue to wash our hands and wear a mask if necessary. And uh, again, if anybody here is here today in person, and you find out you test positive this week, please let us know as soon as possible. And we will not have in-person services the next week. That's our protocol. Thankfully, we've only had to do that uh, for one period of time. So we're thankful that uh, as, as this thing seems to die, as more and more people have gotten it and can't get it again, or they've gotten vaccinated or a combination of the two, we're seeing, you know, it becoming safer and safer to meet in person. So we want to encourage those of you watching from home, you haven't been here for a while, please think and pray about when you want to come back because we miss you, okay? We want to see uh, God's house full and we want to not have to live with this substitute of uh, or supplement of, of online church. We want to have the real thing and be gathered together in person. Um, so I want to continue to thank you for being a giving church. We're able to do some great things with our missionaries that are sharing the gospel. And several of you have asked about our building fund. It's growing because there's people consistently giving to it. So be thinking and praying about what you could give to our building fund, so someday we could have our own location, which would be really cool. Um, we also are still needing a few more people to help once a month or maybe once every other month back there in child care because we're going to continue to, and hopefully in a month soon, we're going to add more children's ministry as we get out from under this COVID business here. So, hey, life groups uh, are continuing this week. Text me for information about that. Next week is what? It's Mother's Day. So we're going to have a special gift for every mom in the house next Sunday. So please join us next, day, next Sunday for Mother's Day. And uh, we uh, invite someone you, you that maybe doesn't attend Revolution Church to join us for Mother's Day. All right, let's do question and answer right now. Let's see if I have any questions. I think I saw a couple come in. Um, let's see here. And if you could text that in any time now. Um, let's see here. Can, can you give an example of the afterlife? An example of the afterlife. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but okay, let me answer in a general sense. Um, so a lot of people wonder, if when you die, where do, where do you go? Okay, well, keep in mind that you're, there's a body and a spirit. Where does the body go? We know it goes in the ground. You can go dig people up if you want to, and you know that they're still there. They didn't go anywhere. But their spirit, Paul said, to be absent from the body, because when you die body and soul separate, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Paul said in Romans that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the moment you die, boom, you're gone. You're with Jesus if you know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, you your spirit goes into outer darkness, which the Bible calls hell. And so it's a place of great torment. It's a place you don't want to go. So this morning, if you are thinking about whether you should trust Christ or not, Jesus preached on hell five times as much as he preached on heaven. You say, Well, you're trying to scare people? Yes. <laughs> you should be scared. Okay? If I if I said, hey, there's a, a there's a crazy man out in the parking lot with a gun, I think you guys would all stay inside and lock the doors. Okay, you would you would take that advice and, and if I love you, I'm gonna tell you the truth. So, um, so the afterlife, there's a lot of controversy though, you know, people who say, Oh, I had nine minutes in heaven and things like that. I'm really cautious about that stuff, okay? Especially your your big priority is to make sure it matches up with the Bible. And that it, it, it is, because um, some of that stuff is kind of spurious. I'll just say that. I'm not saying it's all, I'm not saying people have never had what they call NDEs, near death experiences, or they have seen a light at the end of the tunnel and they're drawn to light. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying weigh that stuff very carefully. Um, Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So you don't die and then come back and then die and then come back. That's reincarnation. That's Hinduism. The Bible clearly teaches that's not true. So I hope I answered the question about the afterlife there. Um, let's see if there's another question here. Um, can you explain who Enoch is and what was his role? Great question. So Enoch was a prophet. In fact, that, these two questions actually tie together. Um, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God And then he was not because God took him. It's like God and Enoch were so close that God was walking with him one day. And he said, you know what? It's late. Let's just go back to my house. And God took Enoch up into heaven. Now, in fact, we were talking about this very same thing at the revival. I mean, this this is a question similar to this. So then what happened to Enoch? Did he get glorified or did his physical body go into heaven? I don't know. But also, um, one question was, well, who, who will be the two prophets during the tribulation. And people will always say, Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah. But me and another pastor think it's Enoch and Elijah because those are the two guys that never died. Remember, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire and taken to heaven. So he never died. And if everybody has an appointment to die, Enoch and Elijah haven't met their appointment yet. And what happens to the two witnesses in the tribulation? They die. So that kind of jives together. So... um, Let's see, uh, what's interesting is, so the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Enoch, Hezekiah, I mean not Hezekiah, Hosea, all of them prophesied more than what we have in the Bible, okay? Now don't freak out here. And some of their prophecies have been found, but God chose what's in the scripture and what's not. Not everything, everything in the Bible is perfect, Okay? But not everything outside the Bible is imperfect. Okay, If someone says in a math textbook, 2 plus 2 is 4, it doesn't mean it's not true. Well, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> okay, The Bible is all true, but not all truth is in the Bible. Are you with me? So Enoch prophesied some things that were not included in the Bible because God chose not to, to include them. It's not because there was some big conspiracy of who's in and who's out. Okay, There were certain things that were very clearly meant to be in what's called the canon of Scripture. Anyway, um, I think Ashley, I had sent podcasts to her about that. If you want to send that back to me, I'll send that out. There's a podcast that goes into great detail why the 66 are in the Bible and others are not. There's a lot of others that people say, other books and prophecies that are wrong, and that's why they're not in the Bible. But there's other ones that were just simple things, simple conversations that were apart. And Enoch had some prophecies, and the book of Jude talks about them. He talks about the book of Enoch, But there's no book of Enoch in the Bible. But don't let that panic you, okay? Because there's certain ones that are meant to be clear. And Jesus, didn't didn't, um, John say, if we wrote down every miracle Jesus committed, he uh, performed, the books of the world couldn't hold it all. Okay, so don't let that, God carefully chose why we have the 66. And I, I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. So how many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? 66. How many books are in the Bible? 66 and it's interesting the book of isaiah is like a thumbprint of the whole bible the first 39 are about if you don't obey god's law he's going to judge you and the last 27 is how messiah is going to come and save you from god's judgment and that's basically a macro of the whole bible what's the first 39 books of the bible it's the old testament law the 27 and new testament grace you know it's a beautiful picture and i think that's even a further confirmation of why the bible is the way it's the way it is um, here's a question. Will you expl- please explain Matthew 5, 48, and can we be perfect? Um, so, great. Uh, I, I'm not looking at it, but that's the verse that says, be perfect as I am perfect. And it goes on. But he explains it, because what does he also say in parallel verses? Be ye holy for I am holy. So, if I say Tammy is perfect for me, which she is, I'm not saying she's perfect. I'm saying it's a perfect fit, okay? So the word perfect in many other uh, books of the Bible means mature, be mature, be well-rounded, be complete, be satisfied. Don't be walk around with empty all the time. Like, i just looking for, I still haven't found like, what I'm looking for, like you two things, okay? Old school people. Um, it, mean, it doesn't mean you're perfect in the sense of you have no flaws. It means you're complete in Christ. You are, you are satisfied. You've found your purpose in life. Life is good, okay. That that's what it's talking about. Great question. Uh, let's see if there's any others. You guys are doing good today. I think that's all. Okay. Um, before I mess it up again, are we doing a song? No, we're not doing songs. Let's stand. And uh, Jermaine, I'm gonna ask you to come if you would to this microphone right here. It's good to have Jermaine back. He's had back surgery, and he's been really aching a lot, and 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 just having to watch from home and. But we're really glad that you're back. So would you ask God to bless us as we go live for him this week?